I'm Carrie Miller, and this is my Friday book show, Big Books and Bold Ideas. Literature is full of homecoming narratives. Toni Morrison, Charles Dickens, Cervantes, Marilyn Robinson. And as Don Winslow points out in the author's note to his new novel, Homer all wrote about the idea of going home. What is it that resonates so deeply about an epic quest that brings us back to where we began? What is it that draws a writer who has been gone for decades back to the place that he began? Those are some of the questions we'll begin with as Don Winslow joins us. He's the author of novels that include The Border and The Cartel, and his new novel is titled City on Fire. Don, welcome back to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. There's so many variations on the literary theme of I'm leaving this place. I've wandered and struggled. I know who I am. I want to go home. And what I want to know from you is why you think that that resonates so deeply with writers in so many different kinds of literature. I think it's eternal. You know, I I think we have this homing instinct. I, I think that we come from a place that whether we like it or not shapes us. You know, by the time we're five or six years old, our, our character's pretty formed by that location, by the family, by the friends, by the culture. And then a lot of us choose to leave, and yet I still think there is that that yearning, you know, to get back to, to what shaped you. And writer, that's almost irresistible. You know... Um, I think you covered this, the the family that we grow up in, the siblings that we grow up with, uh, you know, our own personality traits shape us. But I thought I also heard you kind of suggesting that geography and the community, right, in which we grow up is pretty influential in who we become. Why? You know, for me, I I don't know if I can answer for everybody. For me, I grew up in a little fishing village. And that meant you spent a lot of time on or by the ocean. Me, that ocean, uh, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I always thought of it as the borderless border. You know, you you couldn't go any far. That was the end of land, the, the end of your hometown. And yet you looked out at limitless possibilities. You know, the the horizon stretched forever and your imagination took you across that ocean. And so uh, I think that that physical environment shapes us so much. I, I am still drawn to beaches, to the ocean, whether I'm, I'm out here in California where I am now or whether uh, I'm in Rhode Island where I grew up. Um, I, I still there's a pull to it that, that brings me back. And I also think the the culture, you know, when I was growing up in that town, um, I've described it as sort of a Bruce Springsteen town, if that makes any sense. <laughs> and uh, there, there was not a lot of potential. The, the fishing had played out. Uh, the factories had moved to the Carolinas. And so I felt at that age, at 17, I had to get out. Hmm. Do you think there is a, a connective tissue, a thread somehow, between a story like The Wizard of Oz and Homer's The Odyssey? Because at, at their essence, there is this quest for 
truth and who we are. And then there's this longing to return to the place that made these characters who they were. Does that seem like, like I'm reaching for a connection there? I don't think you're reaching very far. You know, I think there's definitely a thread there. If if you look at, at Dorothy in, in Wizard of Oz, you know, she she's swept away by a storm and, and she's trying to go home, but she has to learn certain lessons and she has to develop certain qualities within herself before she can go home. With the Odyssey, you have this war veteran who's been at war for 10 years in a bloody conflict. It, it's what I write about, in fact, in this book, in a contemporary crime setting, though. But Odysseus is a character in this book uh, who then wanders for 20 years. He has to learn certain lessons and has to develop other qualities in himself before those Aeolian winds will, will deliver him home. So I, I think there's definitely a connective tissue there, without question. Now, uh, what's interesting about this, as you point out in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy is swept into this different place in this different world. But, I mean, you did this, I did this. Many of us exile ourselves you know, we leave not knowing, maybe not planning, on ever going back. I wonder what the need to do that is. <laughs> you don't ask the easy questions, do you, Carrie? <laughs> because No, but I know you I, can take it, Don. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd ask myself that when I was going back. <laughs> you know, why am really? I doing this? Yeah. Yeah, you know, because um, it wasn't it wasn't always easy. Uh, not all of the the memories were wonderful, and uh, we went back uh, to to take care of my mother, uh, which, as as a lot of people know, had its challenges and its difficulties and its sorrows. But at the same time, while I was experiencing that, I, I just started to re-experience, or maybe for the first time, experience a genuine love for that place and, and an excitement about it that, that I still have, by the way, you know, six or seven years down the line. Um, we started to spend more and more time there as, as my mom needed more attention from us. And, and now, and she passed, um, we live there half the year. Hmm. It's sort of a Persephone I, existence to continue this theme. Right, you know? right. Right. I, I wonder if some of this is a, I know I experienced this, a, a kind of distrust that I am really different in some ways than the you know, than the unformed person I was back there. And that if I go back there, I may, you know, there may be some doubt that I, I have become who I thought I was. I mean, you know, in some ways it's like being back in the embrace of your family. You find yourself, you know, almost unconsciously slipping back into that, that child that you were. And I, I kind of like, I've been thinking about this a lot because I have a high school reunion this summer. I've thought, do I even want to revisit who <laughs> I was, <laughs> right. you know, at that part of my life? And going back there is, is going back to that geography is, is attached to that too. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is. You know, my wife experiences this when she goes back for, to Nebraska. She went back for her wow. high school reunion and felt the same way. Like, I feel like a kid again, and I, <laughs> I don't feel as secure. And, you know, I go back to Rhode Island to the same house that I grew up in. And, you know, and so those rooms are evocative of all of that. It's it's funny, a buddy of mine that I went to high school with, I, I ran into again in Rhode Island and, and the conversation began about, are you going to the high school reunion? And we both <laughs> said, no, <laughs> we are not going to the high school reunion. I have I have no desire to revisit that at all. You know, but yeah, I, I think we do. I, I think that the physical surroundings, if nothing else, remind us of our childhood and, and you get that same sort of stimuli that you had when you were a kid and, and it, it can easily reduce you to a 10 year old, you know. Hmm. I have a couple questions about what you've just said. Why, why did you know so quickly that you had no interest in going back to that reunion and, you know, dipping back into that world, especially given the success you've had and who you are and the life that you've built away from there. How did you, why did you know that? I didn't like it then. And there'd be no reason for me to like it now. <laughs> you didn't like high school. <laughs> no. You mean? No, I hated high school. Huh, I was really why? bad at high school, by the way. It felt like prison to me. Um, you know, everybody telling you what to do, um, moving around when the bell rang, uh, or because a bell rang, um, I, I used to go home at night and, and go to my room and read Shakespeare instead mm -hmm. of what I was assigned. Um, I was, you know, uh, would flunk virtually everything until the fourth quarter and then pull it out at the last second. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, had this wonderful English teacher, Josephine Gernsheimer. It was her last year teaching. And, um, I, I flunked the first quiz of junior English class because I didn't read the book. And, and I wrote on the top of the, the test paper, you know, I said, I could probably bull my way through this, but I'm not going to insult your intelligence or mine. Flunk me. And she flunked me. You know, big red F. And, uh, she, but also a note, see me after class. And I did. And she said, don't come to class anymore. And I thought, wow, this is great. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of this earlier. And she said, but you're going to come to lunch in my office. And for the rest of the year, I would go to lunch in Josephine Gernsheimer's office, and she would make me read the Atlantic Monthly, Harper's, really challenging stuff, and then discuss it with her over lunch. And it was years before I realized I'd gotten this sort of Oxford-style tutorial from this brilliant woman, you know, that changed my life. Wow. What an astute teacher. She's, oh she God. saw, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and here's the other question. Do you remember how, do, do you have a, a specific sense memory of how you could not wait to leave, that you knew you had to leave and go somewhere oh, else? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, as the cliche goes, I remember it as if it were yesterday. You know, this um, getting on an airplane, the, the first time for me, uh, and flying out from this little New England fishing village that y'all saw in, like, Coda, you know, the film, and uh, landing on the Great Plains, and you got out of the airplane onto the tarmac in those days, 
and I could see from horizon to horizon. I was almost physically dizzy. I'd never experienced anything like that. I could almost feel the curvature of the earth. I'd uh, never been there before in my life. You know, we didn't do college tours in those days. We didn't have the money to do that. And so I went, okay, University of Nebraska, and off I go. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was remarkable, this sense of adventure and excitement and fear and all of that, that stuff, you know. How did you choose the University of Nebraska of all, of all places <sighs> that you could have gone? Uh, I couldn't go to a lot of places that were not. <laughs> they weren't accepting uh, you, is that it? A whole bunch that were terribly interested mm. in, in having me. Um, <laughs> I, one reason I picked it, it was because it was far away. Uh, and, and everyone seemed to agree that was a good thing. And mm. uh, they had a great journalism school. And at the time, I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought that was going to be my route to becoming a writer. And also, I had developed a, an interest in Native Americans. And I'm not even sure how that came about, but I, I wanted to be someplace in proximity to, to Native American culture. And so that was all Nebraska. I was trying to remember, you didn't you major in Native American studies and... What journalism? Actually, no. I majored oh. in African studies. Oh, that's it. Al that's it. Yeah. Okay. Although for uh, several years, I tutored on uh, the Winnebago Reservation. Uh, you know, teaching elementary school English there. You know, uh, certain nights. No African studies. Yeah. How did you choose that? Um, I I'd had this fascination with Africa since I was a kid. And uh, I took a class in African history and loved it. And then I was selected for this kind of special program where you could design your own degree requirements as long as you specialized in a certain area. And so I specialized in Southern Africa and, and went on from there. You're listening to my Friday book show. I'm Carrie Miller. I'm in conversation with Don Winslow. And we're talking about his new novel, City on Fire. You can hear that the connection is a little glitchy, but we're managing. Um, so many of your books are set in California or Mexico. And mm -hmm. I sensed in this novel a different rhythm or swing of the dialogue. I, I wondered if it if you detect that and if it sounded different in your head and then what that sounds like to you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think it took me probably two years of being back there, of going back there and listening and talking with people and being with friends and, you know, just listening on the beach and in restaurants and bars and things before I could pick it up again, you know, because it, it sounded foreign, but it, it was the, the rhythm and the language that I grew up with. Uh, my wife says that when I get really tired, that the, the Rhode Island dialect starts to seep back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby becomes Bobby. And, uh, and, and sometimes I hear it. So, yeah, it sounded very different. It was uh, at first hard to pick up, but then I just fell in love with it, you know. Uh, it, it felt really natural and fun, you know. So it's a it's a difference in the way vowels are 
pronounced, but is it also a difference in, um, I guess, the the pacing of conversation? I mean, if you if you are writing dialogue in California and you're writing dialogue that's taking place in Rhode Island, what's the difference in the, I guess, velocity of the exchanges? <laughs> yeah, the the New England is a lot quicker and sharper and shorter. And and it's a difference in inflection. You know, famously, Californians always tend to talk in questions, <laughs> like I just did, you know, <laughs> even if they're statements, <laughs> you know. Hi, how are you today? Oh, I'm good. <laughs> Whereas uh, New England has that flatter, you know, uh, how are you today? Yeah, good. How are you? Mm. Yeah, good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I attribute it to you know several centuries of of soil so so rocky it cost you fifty dollars to bury your cat. You know, there's a, always a hopefulness in California inflection and a kind of pessimism in the New England inflection that you know that eventually something's going to go wrong and. And you're right about that. Oh my gosh, that, uh, is, also, that is so interesting. Go ahead. Well, Rhode Island has particular little words, you know, like wicked, mm. uh, you know, which which can mean wicked in the sense of evil, but usually used in the sense of very, you know, uh, how, how, how are the fish and chips? Wicked good. <laughs> you know, he's wicked smart. And there's some other expressions I'm not sure that I can use on Minnesota public radio. (laughs) Uh, That um, are very particular to to that little microculture there. And it it sounds silly to talk about Southern Rhode Island because it's, you know, the state's the size of a Minnesota parking lot, but um, it's a very different culture in the Southern part of the state than in the Northern part of the state. The other thing I notice when I'm in New York City, let's say, mm-hmm. is the the what the visual cues, how different the visual cues are when you're talking to someone and what a difference that makes to the pace of the conversation, the I guess the breadth of the conversation. I think of I think of I'm, I'm going to hear from people that grew up in New York City, but I think of mm-hmm. living there is hard. You have to have a yes, shell. I agree. You have to have a tough skin, right? Yep, yep. And that's how the visual exchange looks, too. A cl- kind of a closed face, you know, maybe a bit of a pinched mouth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that influences the way... I mean, even in the winter, this is the way Minnesotans... Um, you know, have verbal exchanges. I, I really, this is, I've thought about this a lot. I think the environment has a lot to do with even the visual tenor of the exchange. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, having spent years in Nebraska, you know, in a sort of yeah. similar environment, you know, where there's not a single tree to cut the north wind and, and the barbed wire is <laughs> not going to get it done. You know, uh, it's very funny. When we first uh, went to New England, my wife was a Nebraska farm girl, 
you know, is the mm. most open person in the world, you know, to strangers, big smiles. How are you? You know, anyone she's passing on the sidewalk and New Englanders are not that. You know? <laughs> and at first she, she was really offended by it, you know, yeah. uh, and I think she's adjusted to it a little bit and they've adjusted to her, but it's funny because New Yorkers and I lived there for years, uh, you know, can really get into each other's faces New Englanders, we, we stand almost at an angle to each other and talk off to the side, you know. <laughs> it's like visual contact might be just a little too intimate, you know, <laughs> for people. I, I used to joke, you know, that, that and my wife would ask me, like, didn't you and your family, like, talk to each other about issues and things? And I said, we did never had confrontations. We would just leak memos through a third party. <laughs> <laughs> tell mom that if she doesn't tell like mom doing this. exactly yeah. exactly and then so there would never be a face-to-face -face conversation it was always done through a third party you know yeah i mean yeah. you know one of the things i i had to get used to in the midwest was a certain kind of insularity just mm -hmm. um i know these people in my circle and that's enough i, I just find that california culture is the opposite mm -hmm. of that. But here's my question for you. I mean, which is more interesting, I guess, to write about? I don't think one's more interesting than the other. I, I'm really passionate about them both. I mean, I love California for that reason, because really it's where everyone comes to reinvent themselves. Yeah. And so you go out on a beach in California and you see all kinds of people you know, both ethnically and in terms of class and all of that kind of stuff, occupation. And it is very open. It's very freewheeling. And, and people are just reinventing who they are. I, I go to, you know, my little town in New England and that beach. I mean, listen, in, in my little village in New England, there are still houses inhabited by families who've been there since before the American Revolution. What? Yeah. Serious? Wow. Seriously, the oh Brownings, the Pitchers, the Carpenters or Carpenters, you know, in the local <laughs> dialect, you know, their families were there. And the house is, you know, 1760, oh right? Oh. The, the field that I walk by, because they're still farmers on real estate they could sell for millions now, right? Mm. They're growing potatoes and have a few cattle. Uh, and so, and, and my family, you know, have been in New England since, you know, 16, you know, whatever the Mayflower was, I forget that date, but, um, and so, you know, you, you do have that very insular, um, mm. kind of feeling where, yeah, you've only been here for four generations. You're a newcomer. <laughs> <laughs> and they do that New England thing about giving directions by what used to be there. Yeah, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's like, gone. But if you're from gone, around there, you know it. You would know it. You're like you know, you take a left where Maine's ice cream used to be. Go down three <laughs> blocks. Take a right where Benny's was. You know, and and I'm convinced that the motto of New England is: if you were supposed to know, you'd know. <laughs> That's great. So, how are you regarded as somebody who? Uh, you know, happily exiled himself west and then west some more. And, mm -hmm. and then has come back? Um, it, it varies. I mean, I, I think really there's a little resentment 
from some folks, hmm. you know, that, that he left. And sometimes I feel that kind of guilt, you know, but I'm Catholic, so I'm going to feel guilty about everything. But uh, I feel like, yeah, maybe I abandoned them. Maybe I betrayed them, you know. Uh, but for the most part, because my family's been there for so long, uh, I- I'm accepted as a returnee, you know. Mm. I'm in the old house, the old Winslow house, and we've fixed it up. And, and people, I think, respect that and, and like that. You know, uh, so at times, like if I see like run into old high school classmates, there's a little bit of an edge there, you know, those that, that sort of never left. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, pretty positive. But again, I, I come from that family, you know, my mom was the librarian at the local library for 20 years. My parents were the house managers at the little summer theater at the beach for 30 years. Uh, my sister, you know, lives there half the year and, and is, in fact, was a very successful romance novelist herself. So I, I think I have that family connection that, that kind of gives me a bit of a pass. What's your sister's writing name? Christine Rolfson. And uh, hmm. I want to say she wrote 44 romance novels. Oh She's since gosh. retired. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Very successful. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, it's cool. weird, you know. Two kids in a family, and they both become novelists. I know. You know. What are the odds on that? I don't know. Do you have a Do you have a writing office when you're in Rhode Island? No, or do I. You, <laughs> you don't write when you're there. I do write when I'm there. I write on the porch. Uh, <laughs> this I write on an old futon on the front porch, and <laughs> it's. <laughs> it started that way because, again, we were taking care of my mom, and uh, I start work at 5.30 in the morning, and I didn't want to be waking people up. And so I'd you know, grab a cup of coffee and go out on the porch and sit on this old futon by a coffee table and write. And then, I, then it just became my habit. You know, I don't really need to do that anymore, but I, but I like it. You know, I've written some good stuff out there, I think. And so why change it up? Was this novel mostly written there or mostly written in California where you live it was think, most, outside of San Diego? Yeah, I do. Yeah, we live in a little town and we, I, I rent an old what used to be a gas station out in the highways, my office. Uh, no, most of this book was written in Rhode Island. Now, mind you, I've been working on this book on and off for 27 years. I think the first chapter was written 27 years ago. So I'm not sure I could I tell you. Ask you, you know. that. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to ask you about that. What, what does it mean to, I mean, what was it that you couldn't see your way through it? It wasn't the right moment to tell this kind of a story. Have you figured that out? I think I've figured it out, Carrie. I, I think it relates to what we were talking about earlier. I don't think I was ready to go home yet. You know, I, I I don't think I was skilled enough at that point or insightful enough or that I was sort of maybe emotionally able to turn inward in that way, hmm. you know, because my writing does not tend to be terribly self-reflective. You know, I, I write about other stuff. You know, 23 years on the, the Mexican drug beat, for instance, or about New York cops or whatever. 
um, writing this book, uh, I realized somewhat to my dismay that it was going to take some sort of self-confrontation and some kind of accounting of the past in order to really write this book. And I, if I'm being really honest, uh, I think that's one thing that took me so long. And that confrontation was about leaving or what you were when you left yeah. or why you've stayed away or all of the above. I think it was mostly about what I was when I left, you know, um, I grew up in an era of social revolution. Uh, we didn't always have great relationships with our parents, with our family, with authority figures. Uh, I think in a weird kind of way, you know, when I think about me and my friends uh, at that age, we were already tired. Uh, we were sort of waiting to go to Vietnam. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I distinctly kind of remember for me, childhood's end was the, the Bobby Kennedy assassination. I think we were cynical. Um, a lot of stuff happened. And so, um, it was a relief to get out of there. Um, and listen, it's a wonderful place in so many ways. I mean, I absolutely love it now and, and love the people. But uh, in those years, at that age, I, I didn't. And so I had to come back to the house I grew up in uh, and deal with all that. Uh, yeah, it was, um, I think I avoided it for quite a while. You know, it's interesting that you, you talk about that cynicism that mm -hmm. you and your friends had at such a young age, because I've been thinking about who this character, Danny Ryan, is at, at the center of this novel. He, he's he's be involved with, you know, a family of kind of, I guess, small-town mobsters, and he's being drawn ever more deeply into violence. And... He has, he possesses what I think of as a kind of nobility, the, the sense of morality that mm -hmm. I think of as having an innocence about it in this criminal, cynical world that he lives in. I, I wonder what you think of that description. I haven't put that way. I I think you're on to something. You know, I I do think of of Danny as this basically kind of decent guy yeah. um, who is, you know, swept into, it's funny, we we're talking about storms earlier, swept into indecent things, mm -hmm. you know? Um, he, I, I, I think of him as seeking a certain kind of purity, mm -hmm. you know, um, that he had found for a while. He found it in, in the ocean, you know, he found it when he was a fisherman and he kind of loved that. Uh, but it, it wasn't enough to make a living. And, you know, he, he's drawn into this, this more criminal kind of world that, that he really doesn't like. Uh, similar to the way I felt about Aeneas in the Iliad, you know, Aeneas is a minor player in the Iliad uh, and a bit of an outsider. Uh, and that's why I chose him because I, I like 
to have a character with one foot in and one foot out so he can kind of look at things and comment on things at the same time he's involved. Um, it, Danny, to me, is a very poignant character in the same way Aeneas is. You know, we, we often forget, for instance, that the, the tragic fall of Troy is not told in the Iliad. It ends long before that. It's, it's only told by Aeneas when he's talking to a woman he's in love with and she asks him to tell her about his past. And he says, sorrow, unspeakable sorrow, you ask me to bring to words again, my queen. And that line I found so powerful and poignant to write about this guy who'd lost almost everything, uh, but still has to carry on to, to save the people he has left, you know? And that, to me, is Danny. I mean, I guess that's why I think of Danny as having this this quality of nobility, it, you know, foolish nobility in a mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, just uh, blind nobility. And yet, I, I was struck by, you know, he's he has this kind of sense of nostalgia. He is, he is somebody who, but for a difference of a few things, could have, it all could have gone so differently and so much better. Yeah, and I think that's, we're talking about fate, you know, and, yeah, and the right. role of fate in literature and, you know, in life. Uh, yeah, you know... <laughs> I think Danny's tragic flaw is also his greatest quality, and that's loyalty. Mm -hmm. He's intensely loyal to his friends, to his family, and loyal to a certain kind of moral code that in its own way is immoral. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that, that sort of, you know, code between criminals. Uh, and and that's, that's what drives him, you know. Um, it, it was all, Aeneas was always described as a devout man, um, you know, who, with, with a great loyalty to religion and to the gods. And, and I think Danny in, in many ways is the same guy. You know, um, I guess I was wishing that there was a novel or there is a novel to be about Madeline who is Dan's mm -hmm. mother. She's extraordinary. She is... Thank you. She is one of the fiercest, most extraordinary women, I think, you've written in, you know, over the the arc of your novels. Mm -hmm. What do you... Is she... Oh. It, 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 let me ask you this way. Is she mm -hmm. markedly different because of the geography you set her in, the space that she exists in, or... Has she been building for a long time? Is this somebody that you've you've really wanted to write to create? <laughs> you know, you're always as a man a little hesitant about writing women. You know, <laughs> do you have the knowledge or do you have the right, you know, to do it? But of course, you need those characters. I loved that character, and I'm so glad you loved her oh, too. Good. Uh, the, the, the challenge was, you're literally writing about a goddess. That word's thrown around a lot now, right? But she's Aphrodite, she's Venus. And so there was this double mandate to make her 
at once sexual and powerful in her own right. And that took a while to figure out, you know, what's her backstory? How did she become so powerful and rich and influential? Why did she abandon her infant son, you know, which is kind of Danny's original wound that, that's going to stay him, you know, as Aphrodite abandoned Aeneas as an infant. And so I, I had to find a backstory for her that, that talked about sexuality, but at the end of the day, wasn't dependent on sexuality. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a challenge, but it was a lot of fun, you know, and I, I hope I pulled it off. I mean, she also, and, and you've alluded to some of the things in her character and some of the actions mm-hmm. and decisions that she's made that, you know, we would say, well, that doesn't sound noble or moral. Mm-hmm. And yet, somehow you've managed to create this, like, constellation of character traits that, we, you know, in, in, in a very simple way to say this, I really rooted for her. Mm-hmm. I loved her, her kind of enduring, um, those mistakes are there, but I'm not, I, I'm, but I'm, I'm at, living with that. And I'm also this person too, you know. Yeah, yeah. She's more than the product of her mistakes. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, listen, flaws make us interesting, don't they? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope the same for myself. You know, and I hope it for everybody that we're more than the the product of our mistakes. Uh, you know, and she starts life as, for lack of a better expression or kinder expression, trailer park trash in Barstow. I don't know if you've ever been to Barstow, but you'd understand it more. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But determined to get out of that in whatever way she has to and, and to reinvent herself as kind of a goddess, you know, and she's very smart and she's very brave and and then she makes this decision to to come back and reconnect with this adult son because he needs her now mm. you know and and writing those scenes you know with Danny is resentful about her coming to help him but you know i i looked back at the iliad and you saw aphrodite literally plucking aeneas the a wounded aeneas out of battle and saving his life. And, uh, you know, I kept thinking, what, what's the contemporary equivalent of that? So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you liked her. And you'll see her in the next two books, by the way. She, All right. This is the other thing I was going to ask you about. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, you're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Don Winslow, and we're having a conversation about his new novel, City on Fire. So, Okay, you you take twenty seven years to come. you pick the novel up, you put it down. Yeah. I mean, even then, are you saying you knew this was going to be a trilogy, or was it getting deep yes. into the? Really, no, why? Ah, I, uh, I knew I was going to follow Danny through his life arc, period, because I was fascinated by it. You know, um, 
Aeneas, without giving away the ending of this book, but we all know about mm-hmm. the fall of Troy. I mean, Aeneas has to flee, has to leave his hometown, no choice. And then he wanders the world looking for a place to put his feet uh, and making mistakes and falling in love tragically uh, and moving on from that and then building an empire, you know? Uh, And so it was extremely evocative to me and compelling, both as a crime story, because I I love the way it kind of matched up with real life crime history, Mm -hmm. you know, in America. Uh, but also, on to be honest, on a personal level, I I knew what it was like to have to leave my home. I knew what it was like to wander the world looking for a place um, and then struggling to be, to whatever extent I am, something of a success, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I, I always knew this was going to be a trilogy and, and kind of a, a saga, you know, an epic. So in, I, I guess I'm curious about how you think about the arc of a trilogy and leave room for, you know, the direction to really change somewhere in, mm-hmm. the, in the path of the trilogy. Do you do that? Is it, do you know that there are certain uh, touch points that these characters mm-hmm. must get to to keep you on track for the trilogy? How does that work? Yeah, you know, I, I don't outline you know, uh, because I, I want to stay open to the possibility of surprises. You know, I think if, if I'm surprised, the reader is going to be surprised too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, you know, looking at, at the Aeneid, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and, and also the Greek tragic dramas, particularly the Orestes cycle, which is a great crime story. Uh, I knew there were certain touch points that, and I follow all the characters in this first book, by the way, through all three books Mm -hmm. that they were going to have to hit, you know? And again, the issue was what's the contemporary equivalent? Because I, I want people to be able to read these books as crime stories with no reference to the classics at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they could just be standalone crime novels. Uh, And, and, but if, if you do have sort of an interest in the classics or some knowledge of it, I, I think it's, it's sort of a, you know, value added. Uh, but I, I wanted to explore those great themes over the course of time. And, and that required seeing these people's lives through, you know, to, to some kind of resolution. You have said, I think, and I think you've said this in our previous conversations, that you never stop learning from Raymond Chandler. Right. Do, do I have that right? <laughs> you that have that right. Yeah. What, what is it that you... You never stop learning in reading his novels. I, I, I'm not going to claim that I succeed at this. Okay, let me be very clear. <laughs> <laughs> but what I learn is that you can take this crime genre and make it poetic, that you can use the devices of poetry to sort of lift your prose with, and still be within this genre. I don't know why you have to issue a disclaimer. <laughs> well, <laughs> do you really read me like and you... read? <laughs> wow, read me and read Raymond Chandler, and I think you'll understand the disclaimer. There's poetry in in your writing. I try. You will you'll 
acknowledge that, right? I'll acknowledge that. I, I try for it. It's aspirational, yeah. I read a funny quote about Raymond Chandler from Ann Patchett recently. Hmm. She said, maybe you've seen this. She said, classifying Chandler as detective fiction is like putting a Fabergé egg in a carton with the kind that chickens make. It's not <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> I had not heard that. That's great and just perfectly put, you know. Yeah, you know, read the first paragraph of the long goodbye out loud to yourself, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, you'll know what I mean. You know, it's, have you, I think you don't use e-readers, is that right? I do not, yeah. So no e-readers, but do you listen to audiobooks? Um, rarely. Really? Why? Yeah, I, Why? I just like to read. <laughs> I listen to a lot of lectures online, uh -huh. uh, but I I listen and and I I feel badly saying this. I don't mean to disparage audiobooks. I think they're great. You know, and I know a lot of people who love them, and I'm grateful that mine are on audiobooks. But no, I really don't. I maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but I I just like that physical book. You know, I like the weight and the heft and the smell and just the printed word. You know. You know, I asked you that because I've been listening to the audiobooks of the Philip Marlowe series. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Elliot Gould voices oh, their wow. track narrates. Them. Yeah, it's really good. And it I'll is bet. a different, you, there is a different kind of immersion in, because the, his dialogue is so, oh. yeah, so integral to the experience of the story. I mean, so. I was recommending that to you. I, I'm going to try that because, you know, well, I love Elliot Gould and, and I love reading Chandler out loud. You know, it it's a different experience. I, I Maybe we talked about it the last time and if so, stop me. But I got to go to his house. Oh, wow. Um, no, well, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always taunt my Los Angeles friends with the fact that Chandler wrote all of his great L.A. novels in San Diego. Thank you very much. <laughs> And uh, I got to go to the Chandler house and I stood in the room where the long goodbye was written and where the bullet holes are still in the walls where he was shooting at his wife one night. And uh, it was like going to church, you know. Oh, my God. I was just in awe. It was a great experience. Don Winslow is the author of City on Fire. It's brand new and it's the first in a trilogy. Si è stisciurrante, lo provo a così fino. 
Giro 